the memories. The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20 to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red flood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, the winner. It won't be this time. The Stories. Prukop to the corner for Carrington, intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! And now, as a supplement to over 40 years worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game podcast. Greetings, Buff fans from CU at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher and editor for the CU at the Game website, and now your host for the CU at the Game podcast. We've hit podcast number 10 for our inaugural season, and hard as it is to believe, we actually have, at least for now, a football season to talk about. The Pac-12 has announced its 10-game conference-only schedule, with CU losing a home game against Oregon while picking up a home game against Oregon State. Brad will join me as we talk about how the schedule looks to play out and the advantages and disadvantages the bus face in year one under Carl Durrell. We will also discuss the opt-out options for players, including the controversy surrounding the choice of a Washington State player not to play in the 2020 season, as well as the hashtag WeAreUnited movement. We Are United was created by Pac-12 players and has certainly had an immediate impact as to the discussions concerning the playing of the 2020 season. Brad and I will finish up with a discussion concerning the CU recruiting class of 2021 with the addition this past week of the long sought after quarterback recruit, along with a commitment from the nation's top ranked place kicker. Thank you for joining us. It's great to even have the chance to talk about the Buffs playing some football this fall. Okay, well, the Pac-12, last Friday, July 31st, issued its 10-game all-conference schedule, which gives us the opportunity to actually talk about football. Whether it actually comes to four or not remains to be seen, but we do have the opportunity to talk about a little football. And joining me is my best man and best friend, Brad Geiger. How's Highlands Ranch doing tonight? Highlands Ranch is getting by. We are... uh... It's been a beautiful couple days. The golf game is getting somewhat better. So, you know, as well as anybody can be expected in days that were completely unexpected. Okay. Well, to recap for anyone that's been on a, well, you can't be on a cruise because there are no cruises. But if you've been under a rock or in a cave, a while back, the Pac-12 canceled the non-conference schedule, indicating that they would go with a 10-game conference only schedule for 2020 and that was released on Friday July 31st the only real question was what the 10th game would be uh, since we already had a nine game schedule and how it would be rearranged and in CU's case the rearrangement came first of all in the Oregon game which was scheduled for Boulder being Saturday September 26th in Folsom Field is now going to be playing Autzen Stadium in Eugene. And the schedule added Oregon State, which is a game which will be played in Boulder 
if games are going to be played on November 28th. There's also a rearranging of some of the schedule, the rivalry games, except for the Apple Cup for some reason. Washington, Washington State still was being played late, but all the other rivalry games are going to be played early, including Colorado against Utah, which is now CU's Game 2. Brad, when you saw the release of the schedule, what were your first thoughts, first impressions of the CU's 2020 revised schedule? Well, I mean, looking at it from a purely football, if if this was anything like a normal season, you know, the concern is that, with the exception perhaps of Arizona, this is a tough early schedule for a brand new coach and a brand new team. We are going to have to be very patient because, you know, I ask, other than perhaps Arizona, we're 14-point underdogs in our first four games. I mean, Oregon, Utah and the Southern Cal. I can't imagine the betters or the pundits thinking that we have any chance at those games. It's going to be challenging. So it's. I think we're going to have to be patient with this new team because it, we could get pounded relatively early. Yeah, it uh, certainly wasn't doing Carl Durrell and staff a whole bunch of favors. Instead of opening his career at Colorado as the head coach against two Mountain West schools, and to be fair, two pretty second-tier Mountain West schools, Colorado State and Fresno State. Now he gets to play against the two teams that won the divisions, Pac-12 South and Pac-12 North last year, and Oregon on the road, a team that will be probably at least in the top 15, if not in the top 10, when the preseason polls are released. And three of the four games before the bye week are on the road, including a road game against USC, and that, of course, is a team which Colorado is 0-14 all-time against, so playing USC doesn't tend to go well for Colorado at home or on the road, and, of course, this year it's going to be on the road. I guess moving it from Halloween to October 17th might help, not having it as be a Halloween massacre game, but certainly there's something to be said that, as you mentioned, Colorado fans are going to have to be a little bit patient with this team, we're going to have to be patient anyway, but now opening up against Oregon, Utah, at Arizona, at USC, uh, it's hard to see Colorado going into the bye week on October 24th with at best a 1-3 and three record. Yeah, and that, and that means we have to pull off an upset at Arizona. Now, you know, as people have pointed out, Khalil Tate made an entire career against Colorado. And the fact that he has finally moved on. Did he have seven years of yes. eligibility? I can't recall. It just seems like it was seven years ago. <laughs> if, he just, if he just played Colorado, he would have been Heisman Trophy winner. Yeah. Uh, so perhaps that will get better. But again, it's, it's on the road. To, for whatever that matters. When I don't think we're going to be playing in full of packed stadiums. Yeah. So it's, it is, I suspect come October 18th, we will all be trying to preach, preach patience. Yeah. And it will be one of those years where we have to evaluate how good our losses are. Well, and not to pile on the poor buffs, but the one game that they have a chance of winning at Arizona uh, is Saturday, October 10th, which is my birthday. And in the 40 years that I've been a Buff fan, CU has yet to win a game on my birthday. So not to make it any harder for Calderell and the Buffs, but it's not looking good to start with. Now, that being said, three games out of four on the road, 
in stadiums that at best will have 25% and in all likelihood may be empty. If you're going to have to play at Autzen, this would be the year to do it if it's going to be an empty stadium. Uh, obviously, we'll see how that mitigates things being at home versus being on the road because there's certain issues you have just traveling in this uh, situation that we're in nationally. But being in the stadium and having it be empty and quiet uh, will perhaps be a leveling agent uh, to give the road team a little bit more of an opportunity to pull off an upset. But yeah, the first four games are not looking super good. That being said, if the Buffs and the coaching staff can keep the team together, the back half of the schedule lines up pretty well. Yeah, I mean, you know, Washington's always a challenge for us on the road. But getting US and UCLA at home, getting Stanford down, getting Oregon State and Washington State in strange situations to finish the year, there is there could be some hope that we could, you know, start one and three and finish, you know, finish the last four games two and two or even three and one. Yeah, have, um, yeah, three of the last four are at home. Yeah, I think there is, you know, and again, we don't know what home field advantage is going to mean, but we're still not traveling people to other places. So, again, one never knows how bad losses will impact what is going to be a relatively young team. But if Dorrell can hold them together and, you know, get them playing better, it would be nice to end the season on something of a roll. We haven't done that particularly well in the last few seasons. Well, and that's why before February, when Mel Tucker decided to decamp, there was some excitement building for the 2020 season. The fact that the Buffs won November games, beat Stanford, you know, beat Washington at home. Again, like you were saying, you know, we were not being successful in November. We were on losing streaks in November and to win two of the last three games gave a little bit of positive momentum for the off season. And if nothing else, the Carl Durrell era might get a little bit of a boost heading into the 2021 season uh, with this back-end schedule. If he can keep the team together and keep things positive moving forward, there is some opportunities there at the end of the season, um, certainly playing UCLA, which by that point, UCLA, of course, is supposed to open with USC and has a tough schedule, and we might be on a Chip Kelly watch by the time we get to November, and UCLA comes to town. Stanford, as you mentioned, is you know was down, was 4-18 last year. People don't remember that. Oregon State, there's certainly some payback owed there. And then the last game, December 5th, and I know that... Uh, Dave Platty put in his notes that uh, last time we played a game in December, it was 1963 when the Air Force game got postponed because it was supposed to fall the weekend after uh, John Kennedy was assassinated. And they moved that game to December 7th. So playing Washington State in December, of course, they're used to poor weather just like our team is. But as I mentioned earlier, the only rivalry game that is still going to be late is the Apple Cup. And, of course, Washington State's used to playing Washington the last game of the season. Now they're going to play Washington in the Apple Cup, a game they haven't won in forever. And, oh, then, by the way, they get to go on the road to play Colorado. So 
there's certainly going to be some letdown there for Washington State if the season actually plays out the way the schedule is listed and playing against their big rival at the end of the season only to find out that it's not actually the end of the season. Yeah, this is, again, this is just, it is um, impossible to fully predict how 18, 19, 20-year-olds can handle this really weird situation. But it is altogether possible, given what we've seen from Carl Durrell and we don't yet know how he can coach a game. But everything we're seeing out of Boulder says that he can coach a team. The people, the players seem to be behind him. You can make an argument that he's doing as well as any coach in the Pac-12 in dealing with the social upheaval that has occurred. He appears to have a good relationship with his team in terms of communication. So you know, if that spills over towards actual games and he can say, listen, this is the tough part in those first four or five games, but it's going to get better and we're going to get better. That could be a best case scenario. Well, fingers crossed. Now we've talked for a few minutes about the hope for season. Now we're going to bring reality back in and talk about whether or not there's actually going to be a season. I think you saw the joint communique by former CU Athletic Director Mike Bone, now the Athletic Director at the USC, along with the UCLA uh, Athletic Director uh, Martin Jamon, they tweeted out right after the 10-game schedule came out that the USC-UCLA game, which is scheduled for September 26th, the first game of the season, they're pretty much saying, well, yeah, that's great, and we're excited, and fans should be excited to look forward to it, but we don't think it's going to happen. So that's the reality of Southern California right now. They aren't even clear to practice, much less play a game. Will we be playing September 26th, I guess, is the next question. Nobody knows. I mean, here's the reality of this. It it would be nice to be able to predict. You know, we're not just, in in the Pac-12, we're not just dealing with the California issues. Arizona has got no handle on the spread of the virus there. Colorado has had a spike. That is just within our little conference. You know, we've already had entire teams quarantined. What happens if seven players for USC test positive the week before the UCLA game? We just don't know. We don't know how widespread it is among these players. They haven't had all the testing. And the idea that a group of young men at a college, especially once other students return, if they do, are going to maintain social distancing and wear masks all the time, is everything from wishful thinking to pure on myth. There will be games canceled this year. Which ones there will be, where it will be, how that will work, we just don't know. It seems to me the powers that be are dedicated to triumph. So if you ask me about September 26, I think the odds of that are pretty good. Everything after that, I have no idea. And anybody who tells you they do is lying or making money off of it. Yeah. Well, the Pac-12 did one smart thing in terms of trying to buy themselves some time. I mean, they did leave December 12th open for all the teams. So if there needs to be rescheduled games, that's a bye week for everyone uh, leading up to hopefully the Pac-12 championship game on December 19th. And the, the other thing they did, I don't know if you noticed, is that all the teams that play each other the first week, September 26th, 
have the same bye week. So, for example, Oregon and Colorado both have a bye week scheduled for October 24th. So, if in fact everything needs to be put back a week, they are lined up that they can do 10 straight weeks and still have a bye week before the championship game. Now, whether or not that will prove to be brilliant in planning or make no difference whatsoever uh, remains to be seen, but at least they're got their thinking caps on and saying, okay, if we do need to push it back one week, we've already got the mechanism in place. Every opponent that you have for the first game has the same bye week that you do, so you can both move it down to the bye week and play again, in our case, on October 24th. One other very minor point in terms of practicing, CU is supposed to open fall camp on August 17th, which would be the same for other schools playing on September 26th. One thing that really seems minor at this point, but I think it would be a, a thing in terms of practices, is that fall camp and how you run fall camp once school starts are two different things. The NCAA will only allow you 20 hours of practice once school starts. And we've got five teams that are on the quarter system, seven teams are in the semester system. The University of Colorado starts August 24th on the semester system. So you would get exactly one week of fall camp before you have to gear it back down to 20 hours a week. Whereas if you're playing a team that has quarter system, they get a full fall camp. Now, if we actually get to the point where we can talk about playing football, then I can bitch and moan about that more once we get into actual fall camp and practices, if it looks like we're actually going to play football. But I'm reserving the right to be pissed about that down the road if, in fact, it turns out we're playing a team that is on the quarter system and they got a lot more fall camp than we did. Now, other reasons that might play into this, all the schools, all the conferences have allowed players to opt out if they don't feel comfortable. And I believe Virginia Tech's Caleb Farley was the first to say, I'm not going to play. He's a projected first-round cornerback. But he's got a family history of, you know, his mother died from cancer. Everyone understood why that would be the case. And certainly nobody's going to fault anyone for whatever reason they feel they don't want to play this fall whether it's for family reasons or their own personal health reasons. But that being said, there are other opt-out issues that we're now facing. Do you want to be the first to talk about We Are United and what's come out over the weekend and what we're looking at as of uh, Monday, August 3rd? Well, I mean, I think probably most people are somewhat aware that the a group of Pac-12 players, and how big that group is, is of course subject we're going to discuss, has issued a list of demands, some reasonable, some perhaps less so given the current environment, regarding first player safety and health during the COVID crisis, and then broader issues addressing more social issues about appropriate spending, appropriate protection of athletes, um, using some of the money from Pac-12 sports to support scholarships. Um, for non-athletes and the threat behind it as it always has been when players make these kind of requests is we won't play we will opt out and that 
becomes the same question that it's always become when players have agitated for what they felt. And I think what most rational people feel uh, is a fair system is how many people are willing to give up either their playing career or a year of their playing career to enforce these demands. If it's 10, then I think probably the Pac-12 can placate them, as Larry Scott tried to do today in his response. If it's 100, that may be different, obviously. If it was 500, we'd have a completely different environment. But every time we've seen people, intelligent, hardworking, well-meaning people attempt to organize college players, it has failed. Players reasonably understand that they don't have unlimited time. You know, you talked about the, the Virginia Tech player who opted out. Yes, he opted out because of family issues. He also opted out because he started the year as a first-round pick, and he will end the year as a first-round pick. Players who start the year not as a pick and who think they can become a third, fourth, second-round pick don't have that option. And you know, the, the conferences have always been able to just wait these kids out because the conferences and the people who are making millions off those players still have the long-term strength that a player with four or five years of eligibility just doesn't have. Well, I mean, I, I think you're, you're correct that there are some portions of what's being requested that are, are no brainers, you know, and I think that they will go through, terms of racial injustice and, and, you know, medical expenses and obviously name, image, and likeness is already going through Congress trying to come up with something national so we don't have 50 different rules for name, image, and likeness. But I think as John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury News put it, you know, some of the demands are no-brainers and some of them are just outlandish that are just non-starters. And I think I would I would hope that even these, these players that are backing it or are publicly stating it understand that they're non-starters. That, you know, for instance, saying that Stanford should tap into its $27 billion endowment to pay for all this is missing the point. You know, endowments are mostly yep. earmarked for whether it's research or scholarships or whatever the case might be. You don't just get to say, no, you take that money and give it to us. And it just doesn't work that way. And now, there's a certain selfishness to that. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, you should dip into your endowment meant for other students and use it to support athletes is not always going to be a winning argument, especially at Stanford. Yeah. And the idea of distributing 50% of the conference revenue amongst athletes in their respective sports, well, that... Of course, other than men's basketball and football, there is no revenue to distribute. I mean, certainly women's basketball, and you can make some isolated, you know, women's softball, gymnastics. There's different pockets of popular non-revenue sports, but even those popular non-revenue sports don't pay for themselves. And if you start paying just football, then you've got a bunch of Title IX issues that you're going to run up against. So... I understand the frustration. I understand the need to be heard, but it might have been nice if somebody had sat down with them before they went so public with this 
and said, yeah, let's talk about things we could realistically expect or realistically demand before we start threatening not to play. You know, the one thing they have this year, literally the one thing they have, is that the Pac-12 has committed that if you opt out for this year, that you're going to keep your scholarship and that you're going to keep your eligibility. So players can opt out, say they're opting out for health reasons, and put pressure on that way, which is not something they've always had in the past. Now, of course, the uh, coach at Washington State right. um, <laughs> put his foot deeply, firmly, and to the back molar in his mouth and said, you know, if you opt, said to a player, if you opt out, understand this might hurt you in the future, which is completely contrary to everything the Pac-12 said, in which we will undoubtedly see him backing off tomorrow. But, you know, there, I agree with you completely, Stuart. If they had stayed to, certainly, they have every right and every need to talk about health and safety issue. Moving that to health and safety going forward, even moving that, and certainly moving that to social justice issues moving forward makes sense. Some point, yes, you're negotiating here, but your demands have to be reasonable. And nobody thinks players are going to strike for not getting half of the football revenue. Yeah, it's 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 a non-starter. And if you look at the transcript, the, the player talking about for Washington State was Cassidy Woods, yeah. who had a, a recording of his conversation with the coach, which is a whole different question as to why he. <laughs> Recording your conversation with the coach, and and not to defend Washington State's coach Nick Rolovich, but he was kind of taken out of context in the you know clean out your locker because he was talking about okay if you're not going to play that's fine we're 100% behind you, but if you're not going to play then you shouldn't be part of the team that you shouldn't be practicing you shouldn't be going to meals if the idea is that we're trying to protect your health then exposing your health and the health of others in the locker room doesn't make any sense. The danger's not the games. Yes. So, you know, if you're going to do everything with the team except play, then that doesn't make any sense. If you you want to opt out, and he asked him, are you going to stay home in Texas or are you going to come back for school? He says, I want to come back for school. It's like, okay, but you're not going to be part of the team in that sense, and you need to come and clean out your locker. Now, if it was that was the only part of the conversation, he would have been fine. But, of course, he made the mistake of talking about it in the context of whether or not he was a part of the We Are United movement or petition. And then it got muddled. And I agree with you that he definitely put his foot in it and he's going to have to walk it back. But the larger context of it was right. It's like, okay, if you are concerned about your health, then we need to be concerned about your health. We're not going to put you in the locker room and have you practice and sweating and working out and doing meals and training and all this sort of stuff, if you're concerned about your health, then we need to be concerned about your health and separate you from the team. Now, whether or not anybody's going to read that or understand that part of it, and especially since she's considered to be a player's coach and everything that he was very popular with his team, we'll see how that plays out going forward. I do want to end this on a positive note since we're going to hope for football and get excited about football. That's the reason we're doing this podcast is because we have a schedule. But today, we also got two new recruits, two new commitments for the class of 2021. 
one being our quarterback for the class, Drew Carter, out of Portland, Oregon, basically out of Portland, three-star quarterback, and then also the what is considered to be or was ranked as the number one kicker in this class, Joshua Bryan. Having a positive month here, I believe we had nine recruits in the last 30 days or so. So the class of 2021 is definitely shaping up. That's probably about half the class right there. Uh, we're up to 13 members. It's probably not going to go higher than 20. So what were your impressions of today's news about getting our quarterback and our kicker? <laughs> we rarely get those in the same person. Yes. You know, first of all, anybody who brings more than one skill when they walk in, if they're not a five-star recruit, is a good thing. We were worried early on that we were getting, they weren't getting any recruits uh, for a while, it seemed like, or that we were getting, you know, a lot of cast-offs. It does appear that, as a matter of fact, it doesn't just appear. It's clear that the coaches are out there beating the bushes, that they are working hard, and that they are at times bringing home players who are likely to be able to contribute in some way. Nobody thought that this was going to be a class full of five stars. But if in your first year, and again, we've talked about, if in your first year in this year, you can bring in people who can fill roles, who can do stuff for you, and, you know, a competent quarterback is always a valuable thing to have on the roster. It does appear that this coaching staff is developing some of their recruiting chops. So I'm, aside from being excited about particular people, although Drew Carr is fun to watch, I'm excited that this staff is starting to bring kids in, um, and it doesn't feel desperate. Well, I would tend to agree, and I've written down on the website, and I, we've talked about it on the podcast, that I'm giving the coaching staff pretty much a pass on this class. One, because of the circumstances under which they came in, and two, because the size of the class. There's just no way the way the recruiting rankings work that Colorado is going to have a highly rated class. There's just not enough numbers for starters to push the number higher than we're ranked 66 at Rivals right now. I really wouldn't expect it to go a whole lot higher than that. If we get into the top 50, then it's just a a blessing this year. That being said, for the class of 2022, when there's going to be a full class, you know, we have a very few small number of seniors this year, but we have a very large class of juniors. And again, if it turns out there is no football this fall, if it turns out there is no football in the spring, how the NCAA is going to work with the size of the classes and how they're going to deal with recruiting classes, very much in the unknown category. But assuming there's a 2020 season and that there is a 2022 recruiting class that is normal, then I think you can start taking to task Carl Durrell and his coaching staff and what they bring in in terms of the top in-state recruits. Not all the in-state recruits. I've never been an advocate saying you have to sign X many Colorado players. But if there's a top flight player that fits into that class, Colorado should be competing for that. We shouldn't be losing him to Nebraska and Kansas State and places like that. But if they can get a top or several top Colorado players, get back into Texas, get back into California, have these recruiting experts that we've got that still have ties to the South uh, or the East Coast. I mean, we've got 
you know, members of this class from Arkansas and North Carolina, Florida, if they can maintain those ties and bring in those types of players. Let's see how the recruiting class of 2022 works out. And assuming all other things being equal, that there is a recruiting class of 2022 that's normal, then I think we can start judging this uh, this coaching staff. This year, I, it's almost all gravy to me. Uh, anything that we can get. Yes, it's very important that we got a quarterback in this class. It wasn't, to be honest, the first choice. They've had several others that they had offers out to that chose other schools. And we are not deep in the quarterback room in terms of depth and certainly not experience. So to get a quality player like Drew Carter, who can play basketball and football at the collegiate level, he's certainly an athlete. And I'm hopeful that he brings a quality to the quarterback room that gives us some options for the future. Well, I think it's, it's I've, I'm like you. I viewed this as a practice class. You know, how do we work together? Who do we know? How are we going to be functioning as a group? How is Carl, Carl Durrell in the room? What can he relearn about being a head coach and making that recruiting? So I agree with you. Anything we get here is gravy. If we pull two or three starters out of this, solid contributors, all the better. But yeah, I mean, there is no time in modern college football for us to wait four or five years to build a program. Bill McCartney would not get his time nowadays. So yeah, it's got to be better next year and better the year after that. There's no doubt. Again, then that may go back to, can we win three or four of those last five games? Correct. And, yeah. and, you know, get into those rooms come spring and say, listen, yeah, it was a bad year and you had a tough year, but look at us. We got better. And maybe we have the next Mason Crosby, you know, the number one kicker in the country. So you normally don't see, you know, kickers getting a lot of scholarships right off the bat and to get offers and be committed as part of a class. It's like drafting a kicker in the NFL. If you draft a kicker in the seventh round or something, that's actually, you know, considered odd. You know, yeah. you just take them as a free agent and build it from there. So they obviously have a lot of faith in Joshua Bryan, and uh, hopefully he becomes in and wows us from day one. And after James Stefano moves on, we'll have confidence in the kicking game. To be determined. So we got a lot of things going on, but fortunately for the first time really since February, we're in a position where we can talk football and whether it's a hypothetical 10 game schedule or an actual 10 game schedule, I'm glad we got the chance to talk about it. I'm glad we've got a recruiting class that actually has members in it that we can talk about. And if everything holds and fall camp starts August 17th, then we'll be back here in no time to talk about the roster and position battles and talk about actual football. So, Brad, thank you for being here to talk about recruiting, to be here to talk about the upcoming schedule, and we'll keep our fingers crossed that the next time we talk, we'll be debating who's going to be the starting quarterback. Talking about a depth chart just sounds so wonderful, doesn't it? Yes, it does. <laughs> it's good to talk to you, my friend. Okay, we'll talk soon. Sure. Thank you for joining Brad and I for this podcast. If the schedule holds and the Buffs are allowed to open camp on August 17th, Brad and I will be back with you that first week of fall camp 
with a unit-by-unit -unit preview of the CU offense, followed later in camp by a preview of the CU defensive and special teams units. I'm still playing around with how to conduct podcasts once the season begins. Would you prefer a lengthy preview along the lines of the tips that I've been posting on the website for years? Or would you prefer a quick recap on Sundays, dissecting the game from the day before? Ideally, I'd like to do both, but I'm also committed to preparing the tips preview for the website along with my game recap and post-game essay every Sunday. As dedicated as I am to see you at the game and our buffs, that's already a significant time commitment. If you have ideas or thoughts as to what you'd like most to see from the See You at the Game podcast during the regular season, drop me a note at seeyouatthegame at gmail.com. That email address is also good for any questions you'd like to have Brad and I discuss in future podcasts. It's year one for Carl Durrell, but it's also year one for the See You at the Game podcast. So I appreciate your patience as the podcast evolves and look forward to your comments and suggestions. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating. I understand that helps us get the word out. And to subscribe to the See You at the Game podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Go Buffs! Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to seeyouatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to seeyouatthegame at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time, when we will again see you at the game.